0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the other people podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free. More than 630 episodes and counting. It's crazy. It's all for free. You can listen to everything for free. It's a listener supported show your support makes a difference if you want to support this program you can do that at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod you can also now follow the other people podcast on instagram the handle over there is at other ppl.podcast. all right all right not march. Yeah. she there. Hey there. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. How's it going? Happy April Fool's Day. It's April 1st, 2020. Uh, did I say I'm in Los Angeles? I'm in Los Angeles. I have Jen Shapland on the program. She has a new book out from Tin House called My Autobiography of Carson McCullers. Just a great time talking with her. She was kind enough to, you know, stop over and uh, do the show when she was in town on book tour prior to shelter in place. This was recorded several weeks ago. So if you hear, you know, a certain sunniness in our voices or if we seem unbothered or something, it's just because it was recorded prior to, you know, the pandemic becoming a thing in American life and in the wider world. And so on. So yeah, uh, it's April Fool's Day. I'm I'm kind of despondent about it. I can't believe I I screwed it up and I didn't put up a spoof episode. I didn't realize that April uh, that April Fool's Day fell on a Wednesday this year. I think I've lost track of days in the pandemic. But uh, as some of you may recall, back in April 2015, which might be the last time April Fool's Day was on a Wednesday. I put up an episode featuring Michiko Kakatani, the longtime New York Times book critic, who is famously uh, press shy. And in fact, the interview was with Laura Norton, who is the mother of poet Mira Gonzalez, who was guested on this program and is a buddy of mine. And it's a fun conversation with Laura Norton, but of course everybody thought it was Michiko, and I broke the news at the end of the episode that it was an April Fool's Day joke. And uh, to this very day, I still get like bitter emails <laughs> from uh, listeners complaining about that episode. And I want you to know that I treasure these emails and I save them in a special folder. A listener named Jeff in Nashville writes to me. He says, Hey, Brad, I feel like you would have gotten word about poet Molly Brodak who died on March 8th. So sad. I just found out last Friday. She was just 39 years old. In learning about her online, I wondered if she had ever been on the show at any point. And from what I can tell, no. But then, of course, there's always another people connection. Blake Butler, her partner, was on the program way back in October 2011 in Episode 7. Wow. For the last two days, I've been reading Molly's 2016 book, Bandit, a daughter's memoir from Grove Atlantic. I believe it is her only non-poetry published work. Bandit is incredibly honest, painful, human, and hopeful. It is written as only a talented poet could write, obsessed with word choice, non-linear, clever, then completely earnest and raw. It is the best thing I could be reading in this dystopian time. Special thoughts go out to all who knew Molly. Her memoir is profound, and I highly recommend it, particularly to my fellow other people listeners. Signed, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you bringing up Molly. It's a terribly sad story and uh, just tragic. Um, For those of you who are new to the story, uh, as Jeff said, she passed away on March 8th. She took her own life. And uh, from what I've been able to gather, she, uh, you know, struggled with depression throughout her lifetime And uh, just you know, lost the battle with it, and it's just heartbreaking. I did not ever get a chance to meet her, uh, but I do know Blake a little bit. Uh, As you said, I interviewed him way back in the earliest days of this program in 2011, and I've uh, met him in person briefly a couple of times over the years. And my heart goes out to him. My heart goes out to uh, Molly and to her family and to uh, all of her friends, many of whom. Uh, I know we, we definitely have several friends in common in the literary community. And I know that the, uh, grief is large and it's a tremendous loss. So if you're listening, uh, check out Molly's poetry, which is excellent. She's got some, uh, collections out there. I think there's a, there's going to be another one, um, on its way. Um, you know, posthumously and, uh, check out bandit, uh, a daughter's memoir. Okay. So uh, before we get started with Jen Chaplin, I want to uh, say a quick thank you publicly to people who have volunteered to transcribe episodes of this podcast. I put out word, you know, once the uh, shelter in place thing started happening, that if anybody out there is at home and they're, you know, you're bored and you want something to do. Like if you want to transcribe an episode to uh, contact me and several of you were kind enough to do so. I want to say thank you to everybody who volunteered to transcribe. If this is news to you and for some reason it sounds like fun and you want to transcribe an episode or more, you can uh, email me at letters at other PPL.com. You can also uh, email me at that address. Uh, you know, if you have something to say, you have feedback on an, on the show uh, and whatnot. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Jen Shapland. Uh, Her new book is called My Autobiography of Carson McCullers. It is available from Tin House and it is superb. It has been earning rave reviews. Here you go, guys. This is Jen Shapland.
1: So I was at the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, Texas, uh, which is this giant archive on the University of Texas campus, Um, and they have the papers, manuscripts, and belongings of a ton of major writers and artists. Um, I was an intern there during graduate school, um, and Uh, One day, I happened upon these letters between Carson McCullers and a woman named Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach. Um, So that was kind of what started the whole thing.
0: Wait, how did you happen upon these letters? Like they just (laughs) showed up?
1: (laughs) Uh, So my job there involved um, kind of doing research uh, when other scholars would uh, have a project they were working on and some papers they needed to see. Uh, they would email or write or show up uh, and ask to see certain certain things that we had in the collection. So if someone asked to see these letters, um, I went down and, you know, uh, pulled them uh, for the scholar. Um, but I happened to start reading them while I was, uh, you know, counting the pages, which is really all they were asking me to do. Um, and yeah, they how, can,
0: how can you resist? Right, like, yeah. Re- like reading somebody's letters.
1: Right. I think that, like, maybe the best person for that job is the some the person who has, like, no curiosity and and no um real interest but i was constantly kind of uh getting sidetracked at that job and finding like all kinds of little mysteries that i wanted to solve and um you know just tracking all the kind of like funny and unexpected things you notice like faulkner's handwriting is really crazy and tiny um, like tiny tiny and meticulous but he was also uh kind of a drunk so it's very confusing to understand like how he (laughs) how he was able to write like that like things like that um just i don't know would always suck me in
0: can i ask you a question yeah where do these letters live like i'm i i've never been to an archive i'm kind of embarrassed to say like are they in just a box like how, how do they keep stuff so that it's preserved
1: yeah so they are in a box it's like kind of a a gray manuscript box so within the box there are folders um so that the the papers go in the folders the folders are kind of vertical within the box if that makes sense like a filing cabinet almost yeah um and uh the box is in the basement of the Ransom Center uh in the manuscript collection which <clears throat> everything's housed uh on these um metal shelves these huge metal shelving units that slide back and forth electronically um so you can kind of like push a button to slide over to get into a different aisle. Um, which I always thought was kind of fascinating and, and uh it's just a really strange like mechanical space that houses these like incredibly intimate, like tactile objects, uh, and, and letters and manuscripts, um, like all of the drafts of Infinite Jest are there and, uh, like all of the drafts of Norman Mailer's books, as you and can DeLillo see. And yeah. who
0: else is there? I mean, there's, every, there's a lot. Like there are that,
1: Joyce manuscripts there, James Joyce. Um, it's kind of, it's, it definitely skews like white and cis male. Um, and, uh, that's something that I also, uh, explored a little bit in my writing and, and found interesting, but. Um but yeah there there are huge uh numbers of of papers manuscripts from kind of all kinds of major writers from the 20th century that's really what the the guy who was in charge of the Ransom Center uh was trying to collect for many years um so a lot of papers from even british and irish authors came over um to texas cuz he was just such an avid buyer he would he would pursue um, people's collections so intensely.
0: Okay. So not to get too off topic, but now (laughs) I'm thinking about like the modern uh, era and how digital everything is. Yeah. Like I I don't keep any papers, Mm -hmm. not that anyone's ever going to want to buy them, but you know what I'm saying? Like how many writers, like maybe there are some who keep papers, but everyone's just got email and like Microsoft word documents.
1: So, um, when we got, for example, like Dennis Johnson's archive, um, it was, it, a lot of like floppy disks um, and a lot of hard drives, things like that, um, and and some of the Wallace materials which I cataloged were also floppy disks and other types of disks that are not really in use. So there's actually a whole um, kind of person and section of the of the archive that's devoted to um, collecting and preserving and maintaining different forms of technology to be able to access those disks. So like old. Uh, Apple computers and things like that. Commodore 64. Yeah, so that you can actually uh, access those files. Um, But they don't
0: print hard copies?
1: Sometimes they do. If it's something that a lot of people are asking to see, they will. Um, But it's really like a complicated moment for archives uh, as they try to navigate this and figure out what's the best way to uh, preserve and maintain. And, And I think... There's a whole school of thought that really believes in the sanctity of the object, of the piece of paper, right? Uh, And that really starts to come into question in this era. Um, But but yeah, so... You know, there's a there's a move to digitize a lot of the paper manuscripts, right, and, and turn them into, like, electronically accessible uh, documents that people can look at. Um, but then there are a lot of people who would push back against that and say, no, we need to have access to the actual physical object. Um, so it's just kind of a crazy moment when all these archivists are trying to figure out uh, what's the best way forward.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it's like. I can see it kind of both ways. Like I kind of love the idea of tactile objects, but I also love the idea of a digitized archive that can be quickly searched. You know what I'm saying? If there's a way to like, just like if there was a particular phrase or a person's name and you could just zoom right in on it, that would probably be useful for scholars and academics and stuff.
1: It absolutely would. Like there was a time when, uh, someone was trying to, Oh, they were, re-releasing like the, I don't know, 20th anniversary edition of Infinite Jest. And they needed to um, like confirm that the spelling of a particular phrase was uh, the same throughout all the drafts, which meant that I, in turn, had to go through all the drafts of that like thousand page book. um, And there are many of them and find that word, which there's like the pages don't match up. So you just have to search through, find that one instance. Of that word and and see if the spelling is consistent throughout the drafts and like that like that's something that digital digitization just makes like the work of seconds but it took me many hours right uh, of searching um, so yeah I think uh, like when I think about archives today like uh, so much of my research was based in in letters and correspondence but if someone were to uh, just you know, dump all of their, like their entire Gmail account on an archive. um, It would be so different than like the letters that you've saved. Like we don't quite have it figured out. I don't think, at least I don't, uh, how we want to um, preserve correspondence that happens digitally and how we want to separate that from the kind of flood of stuff that's in our
0: So much of it is garbage, too. Right?
1: Yeah, most of it's garbage, I think. Um, Yeah, so it's like, sometimes I think about that, like, how would I, you know, there are some really important exchanges, you know, in, in emails that, that could be interesting, right? Like if someone were researching a person's life, but how do you sift through all the rest of it? Um, so and it's like just,
0: people's social media feeds. I mean, it's, it's the
1: same thing. Yeah. Um, so like, instead of having like a, a photo album or like, you know, the, the snapshots that a person had, like in Carson McCullers case, there were, um, just like maybe five or six photo albums and, and there were hundreds of photos that I looked at, but Just hundreds, you know, but if someone were to try to, uh, gather all the photos that a writer was taking, you know, in their daily life now, it would be
0: like, here, check out my Dropbox. There's 6 million photos, 6 million
1: photos. And you take the same photo like 18 times. And like, it's just such different, a different moment.
0: So, yeah. okay. So you're at the university of Texas. You're an intern mm-hmm. at the Harry ransom center, right? Are you in uh, grad school at the missioner center? Or... Uh, I
1: was in grad school at the UT, uh, department of English. So not the missioner center. Okay. Uh, I was not there for writing at all. I was there for, uh, I was getting a PhD in English, um, to be like an English professor. Okay. Yeah.
0: And so you just in the course of your day, in the course of your work as an intern at the ransom center, get asked to unearth these letters between Carson and I'm going to botch the name.
1: Anne-Marie. Yeah.
0: Anne-Marie. Just, what, what was fine. her last name?
1: Schwartzenbach.
0: There you go. Anne-Marie yeah, Schwartzenbach. Swiss. Yeah. yeah. So you find these letters, you read them and they have a powerful effect on you. Mm-hmm. It's safe to say. Yeah. So can you talk about what the effect was and like how you responded? And also just like the reading process. I imagine you had to deliver these letters to whoever was asking for them, but then you went back like
1: yeah, to... so so the scholar wasn't actually in the building. It was just an email that I was responding to. So I basically just had to um, like page through the letters that are um, housed, uh, for the most part, in mylar, like little plastic sleeves. Um, and I was there to kind of just count the pages to let the scholar know what was there, like this many letters from this year, for example. Um, but instead of doing any of that um, without even going back to my desk, um, to send the email, to let him know, uh, I was just in the basement room with the folder, um, reading, you know, just, just reading these like right in the middle of the stacks, which is not really like best archival practice, not really what you're supposed to do, but I did a lot of it. Um, and so, uh, the letters, um, are just really, they're really fascinating. They're really um, speaking to a relationship between two women who were uh, young and trying to figure out their lives and identities as writers and their lives and identities as queer women. Um, and like both of those things were really, uh, I guess, just really Grabbed me because I was also at that time, and I can only speak about this like in retrospect because at the time I didn't I didn't know what was going on. I was like twenty four, maybe, and uh, everything was very confusing in my life. But looking back, I can say confusing
0: I, as to your queer identity. My
1: queer identity, my I did, like the the work I wanted to be doing. I was in grad school for something, but I really wanted to be writing. Um, but I didn't know any of that yet, you know? I didn't know what I wanted to do or be, right? So uh, these letters were speaking about uh, this this kind of like whole way of living and being that um, really appealed to me and interested me. And I just immediately wanted to know everything about these two women, uh, about their relationship, um, what had been written about their relationship, why I had never really heard about it before, Um, and yeah, so this was the time when I was, uh, like in the process of coming out to myself and then eventually coming out to, um, family and friends, um, and, you know, learning how to live as a queer woman in the world. And it was a time when I was realizing that I really didn't want to write literary criticism, but that I did really want to be writing. Um, so this was like a big moment of transition and these letters just showed up almost like a little like map, like here's another way that your life could look.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. it's like sort of uh, mystical almost. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, mystical, weird things like that happen, at least I think, in archives and in the research process. Um, And research is like deeply personal. Um, The scholars that came to the Ransom Center uh, probably believe that they were doing some very like scholarly and objective and sort of like scientific research on a topic. Um, But it all comes from something really, really personal.
0: Well, there's a, I mean, there's a like a holy kind of communion that happens when you read somebody with whom, uh, you know, their work really resonates with you. And then I think to be in the archives, especially like after the person has died and to be going through their personal effects, like that's a very intimate exchange.
1: Definitely. And
0: so when you feel a similar kind of connectivity, you know, in the way that you might say connect to their, their published work that I can imagine how that would have a powerful effect. And I can imagine too, um i don't know i like I don't want to sound too woo-woo, but it's like it almost feels like somebody's speaking to you like through the spheres or something um I guess it can kind of be easy to fall into magical thinking like why you why her right why, why this totally you know like are you fulfilling in writing this book and in communicating what you communicate, do you feel like maybe you are advancing her legacy or saying things? more explicitly that had to be either omitted or set in code previously? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do yeah. you how do you conceive of, of your work?
1: Yeah. Well, I want to answer that, but I want to go back to the woo-woo thing really quick. Yeah. Um, one thing that, uh, you know, when we were actually in the reading room, um, part of my job was to kind of, you know, sit and monitor and make sure that everyone who was using materials at the ransom center was using them properly, wasn't damaging them or trying to take anything. Um, and you really had to watch the people who came to look at Alistair Crowley's papers because <laughs> they would be trying to do spells and shit. Oh my um, God. Yeah. And so like the woo thing, like it, it goes in a really strange direction when you're kind of working, uh, in a space like that and, and just watching people interact with, with these materials. And, um, so that was just something that, uh, I,
0: felt like... I thought you were going to tell me you like saw Carson McCullers like you know spirit or something. No, appear.
1: people really like to ask me if I uh, <laughs> interacted with her ghost. I've <laughs> Been asked that many times, and no, the answer is no. And I think her ghost is probably pretty busy. Um, has like a lot of friends, and you know has a lot going on. She's got stuff to do. Yeah, she's got a lot to do. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I think that my project really had to do with first kind of. Unearthing uh, and and understanding the story of her life that she was trying to tell, um, she she kept kind of trying in different ways to write or tell her autobiography, um, and never really got the chance to tell the full story. So my job was the way I envisioned it was first I just wanted to figure out what that story was that she was trying to tell, um, apart from the way other people have narrated her life or other people have explained you know what her different relationships mean. Um, and then I just felt like that version of her, the version that she was trying to share, really needed to be um, out in the world uh, and kind of coexisting with these other narratives of her life that that exist. Um, so definitely there were parts of her life that were revised, covered over, um, you know, censored is is kind of the best word for it, even though it wasn't necessarily always an active process of of censorship. Um and
0: meaning like it's a it's a it's a subtler a little Process. subtler
1: than that. Um yeah, it's it's the kind of censorship that occurs when instead of using kind of the right language for a particular relationship or feeling we code it in euphemisms. Um special friends. Special friends, roommates, <laughs> yeah. I've
0: heard that from adults in my life. Yeah. Like in family. Well, situations. you have like a
1: Midwestern connection in some way. Midwest and the
0: South. Right. And special so... friends is very common in right. the Midwest and
1: Exactly. The South. <laughs> yeah yeah i think um and i think that still goes on today there are definitely still people i know in the midwest who would refer to like my partner as my friend um or or any like gay person's partner as their friend um and uh i guess one of the things that i learned from doing this research uh and writing this book was that uh when we do that when we uh Choose some like more delicate seeming term for a person's uh, relationship or orientation. Uh, the effect of that is really to erase the truth of that relationship uh, in the historical record. So that uh, when someone else comes along and is trying to, you know, for example, see um, their own life or experience reflected in something they read, which is what we often do when we come to books, especially when we're young, um, they're seeing uh, th- th- they might think they see themselves, but then the language is kind of pushing them back, pushing them away, um, or saying like what you think you're seeing isn't really there. Um, so I guess I just learned how important it is to kind of insist on the right language.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting to think about Carson McCullers in the time that she lived and wrote, um, you know, things then were not as, um, it wasn't as tolerant of an environment Mm -hmm. as exists today. And so it's interesting to consider the tension between, um, her true feelings and her true identity and any confusion she might've felt internally about that and like how that tension created the work that she made Mm -hmm. and you know what I'm saying, the necessity of it almost in terms of the books that she turned out. And do you ever think to yourself, like what, what kind of books would she have written in the absence of that tension? Do you know what I'm saying? Did that occur yeah. to you? Do you have any like insight into that?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, the, the best insight I can offer is just to say that she, you know, her, each of her novels um, shows so much uh, emotional insight um, and kind of like just awareness of these different relationship dynamics and longings. Um, and I feel like that's one of the things that people love her for and love her work for. Um, And then it wasn't really until she was in her 40s and decided to go to therapy. um, And the therapy transcripts uh, or the transcripts of her therapy session still exist. So I was able to read those and really kind of dig into that moment in her life that she actually was able to apply some of that insight to her own life and her own relationships.
0: Can I stop you here? Sure. Does Not all therapists record sessions, do they?
1: No, <laughs> no.
0: So it's odd to have transcripts.
1: It's super odd. It's I'm finding actually it's more common than I would have thought um, that kind of in the fifties, this happened a lot. So I keep ending up in these archives of like women who went to therapy in the fifties recorded the sessions and there are tapes or there are transcripts. Um, I think the idea was that they could then revisit them later, uh, and kind of like, <laughs> understand, like right. Like to me, that sounds terrible. Um, but so Carson had her, uh, her therapy recorded because when she first went, she was like in the middle of really bad writer's block, trying to work on this novel, hadn't published anything in a while. And she was really like hard up for cash. And so she just didn't feel like she could afford therapy, but everyone said she really needed to go. She had a number of significant uh, losses in her life recently and, and she was really struggling. So she went, but with the caveat that she wanted to, record the sessions and have them transcribed so that she could use that as the first draft of her autobiography. Uh, That was her grand plan. Uh, And the therapist, for one reason or another, agreed to this, which is still astonishing to me. Um, and so the transcripts still exist, uh, the Who transcribed
0: them. I guess she did.
1: No, it was actually her, the therapist, Mary Mercer's secretary, Barbara, what's her name <laughs> transcribed wow. all of them. Okay. They each got a copy of the transcript to correct. Um, cause there were moments when, you know, it wasn't clear what a word was or something like that. So there's kind of two corrected versions out there.
0: Wow. Okay. So let's talk about your personal responses to reading these letters um like i've said it already it had a powerful effect on you you were obviously like gripped by what you were reading and felt like a deep personal connection but you also like cut your hair yeah
1: yeah yeah.
0: you you read these things you had like like behavioral responses (laughs) right it changed you pretty immediately that's like that's pretty um i think that's pretty amazing
1: yeah, and again, what's funny is that like I wasn't aware of the connection between any of these things at the time, and I'm still, you know, skeptical of it enough to say like I don't know if I read the letters and that caused me to cut my hair, but I can tell you that when I go back and like read my journal at the time and look at the dates, like it was within days, um, and uh, I was I was kind of going through a lot then um, in in terms of just figuring out and coming to terms with my own identity. I had been in a closeted relationship with a woman for, uh, seven years, uh, starting in college, um, and was still kind of living with that and in that in Austin. Um, and so, and that had kind of recently blown up. Um, and I was trying to figure out like, what's next? Who am I? Am I queer? Am I a lesbian? Do I, uh, uh, do I want to continue to date women? And I is, just...
0: is there a difference between queer and lesbian?
1: Um, there is, but uh, I don't really totally know what it is other than to say, um, I use the word lesbian a lot in the book um, intentionally because I feel that uh, we, and that includes me, are really uncomfortable with that word. Um, and it's almost like a like a slur or an insult um, and that people are more comfortable saying gay or queer. And I just find that interesting. And
0: see, let- I, I'm kind of like, I always, whenever I say like queer when I was a kid it was sort of a pejorative.
1: Totally. That's the other, I've, I've gotten that response from folks who've read the book too. Like why are you using this word? But within um, like any sort of like theoretical or academic discourse about um, sexuality, queer is kind of the, uh, the, the, word that's used the most um, and I think that's because it can encompass a lot um, it can encompass people who are gay who are lesbian who are transgender who are um, bisexual kind of it, like it can uh, refer to like any and all of those different things so it's a very convenient word and it's just a word that's been reclaimed from its um, former usage you know so it's it's a way that um, queer people reclaim the the insult that was thrown at them kind of.
0: Yeah. yeah. And and then I want to talk to you as well about the, the like the feeling of not knowing mm-hmm. and, you know, which is, I think part of um, the closeted experience or just the, the coming out experience where you have to, and you, I mean, you can obviously speak to this better than I, but it's like, it's an interesting thing to consider that you wouldn't know what you are, yeah, uh, and I mean, I struggle with identity in different ways. It's like, wait a minute, am I like, am I this body? Am I this? Mind? Like, I get the idea of not having a solid sense of identity. I almost think it might even be healthy in some respects. Sure, but this closeted experience—like, I always knew I liked women, mm-hmm. um, and for you, it was like you liked women, but hadn't fully admitted it to yourself. Can you talk about the psychology of it? Because I think it's interesting considering Carson McCullers. And the the work that she created, and the time that she was living in, and some of the um, the omissions or some of the restraint that exists in that work, and yet the powerful sort of like sub um, psychological or not sub, but the psychological way that it impacted people who might be dealing with feelings of otherness, whether it's um, sexual or gender. Or or disability or otherwise, I feel mm-hmm. like like her work resonates with people um, at that level strongly, and maybe um, uh, you know, maybe in ways that they might not even be able to explain.
1: For sure. Yeah. So,
0: can you? Did I a- ask a no, cogent question? No, that's great.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, I I feel like there's two kind of examples from her books that that could answer this um, in an interesting way. So, like. Uh, my favorite book of hers is Member of the Wedding, um, and that's about uh, an adolescent girl, Frankie, um, who just uh, can't figure out where she fits um, and just feels kind of fundamentally like an outsider in kind of every situation that she's in, living in this small town in the South. Um, and I feel like describing or thinking about my own um, adolescence uh, and and kind of not knowing, the not knowing... Um, you know, in terms of my sexuality and my identity, um, that book really, and that character really reflects just the, the feeling to me of, um, knowing that you don't fit, but not knowing why or, and not knowing what would fit, um, or, or what, you know, what person you, are or could be. So there's this strange thing that happens, I think, um, especially, so I grew up in a suburb uh, of Chicago uh, in a really Catholic and repressed <laughs> kind of uh, situation. Um, what I, suburb? Lake Forest. Okay. So also like extremely affluent and extremely white. Um, there, there were not a lot of examples, um, hardly any examples of, of difference of you know, any kind, um, but particularly there were no queer people or lesbians in my community um, that I knew that I knew of. Um, I didn't know any out queer people growing up at all. Um, and the first uh, person I can remember was like Ellen, you know? <laughs> so... Uh,
0: by, by the way, it's worth it because I remember, um, I don't know if you watch the Golden Globes, but I happened to see... Kate McKinnon, am I getting it right? Yeah, from Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. the speech that she gave—that
1: was so good. I got
0: choked up, and I, I was—but it made me go, "Wow!" Like Ellen really did have huge effect—a huge effect. Yeah, and I hadn't maybe properly considered that.
1: Totally, yeah. So, so that feeling of not knowing, and then also like not really having a model for how you uh, how you could be, or or what else you could be. So, like the model for my life was. That I would, um, you know, maybe I'd go to college and, and have a career, but the important thing was that I would get married and have kids, um, and that was really sort of the the life plan. Um, and there was no other like, you know, version of a life trajectory that was like available to me. Um, and so I think that McCullers captures that really well um, in *Member of the Wedding*. Um, but then to speak to the kind of the, another part of your question. Um, I was talking with um, Natalie Goldberg, who lives in Santa Fe. She's an author.
0: Oh, yeah. She wrote, like, Writing, writing Down the Bones and many other books. Yeah. But, like, like great writing teacher, among yeah. other things.
1: Yeah, incredible writing teacher. Um, and I, she's a friend of a friend, so I've had a few conversations with her. Um, and she talks about um, Ballad of the Sad Cafe being a book that she read in high school that had... Um, just a huge effect on her. It was what made her want to be a writer. And it wasn't until like many, many years later that she realized, um, you know, in the process of her own kind of coming to terms with her queer identity, that like part of the reason that book spoke to her was that it was speaking to like this particular unfittingness of being queer Mm. um, and not having the language or words or even like ideas to, to understand that, so yeah, I think there's there's almost something about the ambiguity in those early McCullough's books where she's not totally like coming out and naming anything as what it is that allows this projection and this like understanding to happen,
0: yeah, and it just kind of works on you, yeah, on a, like a deeper level, totally. Um, I'm now thinking of Santa Fe. like, so Natalie Goldberg lives there. Julia Cameron also lives she there. She does, yeah. So like the, like the gurus of like creativity. And I writing, know, yeah. They're right there for you if they're you need They're right them. <laughs> there. Yeah, I
1: love Julia Cameron's books so much. I'm actually working on an essay about self-help and about these kind of new agey books and approaches to creativity and healing. And,
0: and by the way, for people listening, uh, Julia Cameron is the author of The Artist's Way, which is a famous book that is, um, you know, it helps people get their books written among other things, but right. you make, you know, you do morning pages, you do morning
1: pages. And I actually still do that. I do like evening pages cause I don't really like the morning, but, um, but yeah, I, I read that book a few years ago at a residency and it just totally changed my, <laughs> my approach.
0: It's practical. Yeah. You know, it's I mean, take or take or leave whatever, you know, whatever, uh, works for you or doesn't work for you. But, um, I, I read it when I was in college, I think. Went through like some fierce like morning pages. Yes. Periods. You know? I made
1: my students do it um, in a, in a nonfiction workshop at the Institute of American Indian Arts, and a couple of them were pretty mad at me, but some of them loved it so much that they asked if I would continue to count their pages. After the semester, because what I would do is just like halfway through the semester, I just counted how many pages they each had to see if they'd been doing the three a day. Um, and they were like, I just want to keep doing this. Will you please keep counting my pages? Yeah.
0: Well, I think that uh, you know, even if it's not a creative boon, I think it's a, it's helpful psychologically. I, I think, think
1: that's a huge part of it. Yeah.
0: I think it merit in just like, you know, getting out of your head, whatever's in your head and not policing yourself at all. Totally. And by externalizing it, you sort of rid yourself of it or at least like diminish its intensity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there's something to that. And then just another like random question, but like when you met with Natalie Goldberg, she just, does she have like a salon or how do you, how did you meet her? Oh,
1: I just met her through a friend of mine uh, who's an artist. Yeah. So she just had us over for dinner. Um, and then it actually turned out that, we have the same acupuncturist, which is another thing <laughs> that happens in Santa Fe. I was going to say, so, or yeah. like, isn't
0: Upaya Zen Center there too? Yeah, I know yeah, Natalie's yeah. always there. She's
1: yeah, she's she works with the Zen community and she's uh, been a practitioner for many years.
0: Yeah. Cool. okay. I got to get to Santa Fe.
1: Do you? You're like a Zen
0: person, yeah, kind I of. I shouldn't overstate it. Okay. I'm a meditator. Got it. But I'm not. I'm Buddhist. That's my
1: joke. <laughs> <like> That's <laughs> all I'll ever say.
0: But I don't know what like the holidays are. Sure. I don't go to temple. I don't care about like the the gods or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I'm practical. I yeah. just, I need to calm down and, you know, don't not, we all? not yeah. suffer as inelegantly as I sometimes can.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um. So I want to talk about. A little bit more about Lake Forest and growing up just so I can get like a fuller sense of you, um, as a person, like I'm from Milwaukee mm-hmm. originally and then Indiana. So I know that general area, um, that Tableau. Yes. Um, and I can imagine, like, I think back to my high school, there was one guy that was out. I think I've talked about him once or twice before on the show, but it was, uh, it's, it's odd in retrospect because he was like flamboyantly out mm-hmm. and, um, came from like a very sporty family, mm-hmm. which normally would be like a disaster. But he had a very, from what I gather, he had a very good and supportive family That's awesome. who accepted
1: Yeah.
0: and I'm sure he dealt with a lot of bullshit. I don't know. I don't remember being exposed. I never saw it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. But it was just sort of odd because it was like, oh, yeah, that's, I'm not going to say his name just because I don't know. But I just like, everyone was just like, oh, yeah, or at least I was. I don't know. But it was just this odd, like, kind of anomaly in our school. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess things were changing. I think a lot of the kids had open minds and good intentions, but so much of it has to do with just exposure and representation totally and communication
1: yeah
0: um which i think we've seen you know thankfully we've seen more of but um like did you grow up in uh, a family that was supportive did you feel scared i mean you felt scared to come out siblings can you just talk a little bit about what your family situation was
1: yeah so i have uh, an older brother Um, and growing up, like I was kind of the goody two shoes of the family. Um, and my parents were really strict. Um, and, uh, so, so I didn't, uh, feel like I had a lot of like necessarily a lot of freedom, uh, at any point. Um, but what do
0: you you mean by strict? Like you had to be in you couldn't go out or you had to be,
1: um, and like, I don't know it it just kind of always felt like we were being monitored. I read about a part of this in in the book where my mom goes and reads a bunch of my journals while I'm away at college. She was always going through my stuff. there was no privacy there was no you know space um and uh I think that had kind of a huge effect on me and on my kind of um I don't know, ending up keeping a lot of secrets uh, and and just trying to like um, almost sanitize my identity a little bit um, just to avoid like difficult conversations.
0: Where did you leave the journals?
1: Uh, I left them in my childhood bedroom in the nightstand.
0: Oh, you did? Yeah. See, I'm not like – I have some journals lying around and I'm not very careful. I don't know. I mean, if people want to read them, like it's just me bitching about life basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I will say, as a parent, like my daughter's nine, and she like likes to keep a journal, and one of them has like a key in a lock, you mm-hmm. know how kids are and uh I will say that it is really hard to resist opening it. It's a violation of privacy, but she's young enough where i'm like oh, I'm just curious- like as a parent, you're curious to know what's going on in your child's head, right, so it's right, sort right. of irresistible. I'm not excusing it, but I... I, No,
1: no, I think that's true. I've heard that from a lot of people who've either said that their parents also kind of like read all the stuff that they were writing or that uh, they are parents and they keep tabs on their kids in that way. I know. Um, And well, it's just interesting that I think the difficulty for me at that moment too was that I was like on the verge of being an adult. Um, And so it was really, it just felt like such a huge transgression. Um, and then, of course, my mom ended up reading aloud from these journals to my closeted girlfriend and me at the dinner table oh, um, to try to understand our relationship. So it was pretty traumatizing. I actually didn't write for a long time after that um, because I just felt you know, just so betrayed, I guess, and exposed and just didn't want to write anything.
0: That's a great excuse for not writing for a long time. Yeah.
1: yeah. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah,
0: that'll do it if nothing else will. I mean, that's, uh, that's intense. Like in, in, in that moment, you're just sitting there at the table, just like dying,
1: dying. Yeah. Like oh. humiliated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah.
0: Uh, and you were raised Catholic. Yeah, that's another. I mean, I was raised Catholic, so I get it.
1: It's the whole thing, and so like, there's just so much that we did not talk about in my family ever, um, and that you just weren't even supposed to like have in your brain. You know, you weren't even supposed to know that like sex existed, right? That was just not even. Did you
0: have the whole cardinal sin thing with premarital sex? Were you taught that?
1: Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I had like that packed into my head for
1: sure. Yeah,
0: it's just it's very loaded. My parents weren't too heavy-handed about it but they were definitely like Sunday churchgoers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was just, you know, but eventually they let me quit. I mean, to their credit, they let me be me. Yeah. But I was also pretty bullheaded.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean my my mom was the Catholic, she was raised Catholic and went to parochial school in the South Side of Chicago um with like nuns that like hit you with the ruler and stuff. You Irish? Uh no. Um Slovak, <laughs> oh, okay,
0: yeah, no, my sister's uh married to a Slovak. Oh, interesting, yeah. You like pickles? You I it? actually really don't, okay, yeah. He loves I'm pickles, not a very good one. <laughs> pierogies, like is it pierogies? Right. Yeah, all right,
1: um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, my dad wasn't religious at all, he kind of begrudgingly went to church with us on Sunday. And um, he's Slovak too, or no, no, he's not, he's he's all kinds of things. Um, he's from uh central Illinois, like farm country,
0: okay, yeah. And what did your folks do?
1: My dad is an accountant. Um, so he left home at 16 to, uh, go to school. Um, cause he really didn't want to stay in Ashcombe, uh, and be a farmer and be a farmer or like his dad was a farm equipment salesman. And that was not his, his jam. Yeah. So he left really young. Um, my mom, uh, she left home and actually, uh, her, her parents kind of stopped speaking to her for a while because she decided to go, uh, to school to kind of put herself through, um, uh, I don't think it was college. I think it was like secretarial school, uh, in, in Chicago. And, uh, her parents kind of disowned her for a while for this because she was unmarried and not living. Under their roof. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so, I think like the only time, like the the time that they were reunited as a family was at her wedding. She got married, uh, like in her thirties, and then they decided to talk to her again. <laughs> so like, wow. yeah, totally. So my my mom's coming from a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, you can see you can see patterns. Right. It like exists in every family some way, shape, or form. But For then, sure. what is your brother up to?
1: My brother, um, he. He's interesting. He was. Uh, he always wanted to be a musician. He played the tuba um, for a long time. And um, he kind of was one of those people who just will play any instrument. Um, and then he graduated uh, with a degree in music publishing, like right into the recession um, and couldn't find any work. So now he's in like sales and marketing.
0: Now he's, he's busking with his tuba. <laughs> right. I, I kind of wish he was. No,
1: No, he's like kind of, he went and got an MBA and is trying to do the whole Yeah. Stand up thing. (laughs) (laughs) The hustle.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay. So I want to talk now about the way in which you went from like intern archivist reading these letters and being riveted. You give it, you know, you get a haircut (laughs) and then is is this is the impetus for you to start writing? Like this was like, were you writing prior to this? Did you think you were, did you, had you made it like, moves in that direction or was this the thing that like launched you in that direction and you were like this is it
1: yeah it's interesting actually it was working at the archive that got me writing um because it was almost like i was having these experiences with with objects and things and and just like these little mysteries and and strange uh finds that i was like i have to write this down um and and so i guess i really hadn't been writing since uh college. And since that whole thing with my mom, like I kind of just decided that was not the path that I was on at all. Um, and I was in grad school and trying to write literary criticism, which is a very, um, different genre than what I now write in. Um, but at the ransom center, I, um, I ended up publishing my very first, uh, kind of long essay, Uh, In Tin House that was about theft from the archives, um, which was another kind of accidental discovery. I um, was looking at this molecular model kit that belonged to Albert Einstein. uh, And in it, I found these letters referencing a theft from the Einstein collection. Uh, and then I sort of followed that up and started asking like everyone who worked there about this theft and no one wanted to talk to me about it, which just made me really want to know all the more um so yeah, I ended up finding out that this like the grandson of this um beloved football coach at UT had stolen some of Einstein's notes on relativity from uh like a locked case and taken them home and like was displaying them at parties and (laughs) (laughs) like which i thought was hilarious but then like the like subterranean part of that or like the, the part that they were really trying to not talk about was a huge internal theft that had happened in the i think in the 90s um where uh one of the uh curators was involved in uh helping uh his girlfriend steal like hundreds of rare books from the collection. And then they sold them on the black market. Um, so anyway, I kind of fell down this like theft rabbit hole and wrote about it, um, published that in tin house. And that went on to win a pretty big prize at UT that had a big trunk of money attached to it. And then it also won a Pushcart prize. And that's when I was like, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Like maybe grad school is not like, Maybe I don't need this. Maybe I could actually just write. Um, And so I decided to test that out. um, And that's kind of at the same time that all of this is happening, I guess, uh, is when I'm finding the letters. Um, And so I'm just like a point of of convergence. Yeah, totally. Um, And and that's when I I start thinking like, you know, if I do want to write, you know, I've never even been in a writing workshop or anything like that. Like, what should I do? How should I do that? Can I do that while I'm still finishing my dissertation? And I managed to um, to attend some summer workshops and some residencies in grad school. And those were also what really um, shifted my path because I was suddenly around other writers and artists who uh, I felt such a kinship with, uh, which I had never felt um amongst academics uh i found your people i found my people yeah um and just as with like many things in my life it took a while
0: (laughs) well you know but this is this is kind of the point that i want us to get to is the fact that even even once you were kind of on this path you'd written that essay you'd won that prize you'd found these letters you were starting to kind of like follow the breadcrumbs or whatever it still took you a while to realize that you we're writing about yourself.
1: Totally. Like yeah.
0: that's what I'm interested in. Cause I feel like this is so common. We always sort of, or we don't always, but we often dance around the the thing. Mm-hmm. We, it takes us a while to admit what we want to say or something, you mm-hmm. know? So yeah, how did it happen for you? Like, when did you go, Oh, mm, like yeah. I'm telling my own story. And I love like the title of your book is so clever and knowing, um, and speaks to this obviously. So, like, how did that part of it go for you?
1: Well, so like I was saying, it, I, I was trying to uncover this story that Carson McCullers was trying to tell about her own life. Um, and it, it seemed so important to really like, capture her words and her version, what she had to say about it. Um, and... Uh, I was doing that by, you know, kind of using all of these archival encounters, so the letters, the objects, I cataloged her clothes and personal effects um like lived in her childhood home and I'm kind Wait, of, you
0: lived in her childhood home?
1: I did. Yes. Which is where? In Columbus, Georgia.
0: Okay. So you can do this? Are they, is it on Airbnb?
1: (laughs) No, it's a, it's a writing residency or it's a residency for writers and musicians. Um, and I applied to the residency while I was in grad school. Um, and, uh, I did not get it, but the, uh, director at the time, she was about to step down, but she wrote back and said, you know, because of your project you really need to come. You really need to come stay in the house, but they didn't offer me an official residency, and I don't really know why. But I kind of suspect that they just didn't want to, like necessarily publicize the work I was doing, uh, and I have different like theories about why that might be.
0: Wait, you don't think they wanted? Like, how much did they know about the work that you were doing?
1: They knew that it was uh, a project focused on Carson's relationships with women. I think I, I just left it at that. Uh-huh. Um, but because of what they know about her relationships with women, um, I think it was it was not a path that they wanted to go down in terms of her like image and legacy. Yeah,
0: it's sort of like Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, the, the, right. the, the historians at, at uh, Monticello. Is that what it's called? Uh-huh. It's sort of like that. They get protective.
1: Very protective but of they shouldn't a be specific version. Uh,
0: yeah, but that, I think that... Well, good thing that, I mean, at least they let you come stay. Yeah. And uh, can you talk about being there? Like, what's the house like? What was it like to be in the house? Was it spooky? Anything like that?
1: Yeah, it was super spooky and uh, filled with, like, her furniture. Um, and then it, it's also kind of a museum, so some of the rooms have, um, like, a lot of artifacts just being, like, her her cane, her suitcase, her handkerchief um, behind glass. And then some of the rooms have um, black and white photos with like a timeline of her life. Um, And there's a lot of fan art, a lot of like paintings of her by various people that are um, mostly not very good. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the whole house is like decorated like it's the – I don't know. It feels like it's the 60s or 70s in there.
0: And you're just living in there.
1: And you're just living in there. And like the bedroom's in this kind of like back basement area, but the whole house is open to you and the kitchen is upstairs in kind of the main house. Um,
0: so, I mean, I don't mean to be weird, but like people sleeping in Carson McCullers' bed?
1: Well, that's what's confusing about it. So, I'm pretty sure the bed was not actually hers, but the couch was hers. Um, so, like, some of the furniture belonged to her and it was never clear to me if I was supposed to sit on it um which eventually i did but like um i had just come from this archive where i was you know wearing white gloves to handle her her coats and her socks and things and and housing them in like tissue paper in this very meticulous way and now i was in this other kind of archival space where i was just you know here's the couch where she wrote clock without hands um and no other guidelines about you know whether i could touch it or you know whether any of this stuff um you know, was, was there to be used, how much of it belonged to her. When I was using things in the kitchen, I was like, was this her? I don't think this was hers, but I really (laughs) don't know. Like just the strangest thing. Yeah.
0: That's wild. Yeah. That's kind of cool though. I kind of like, I I like the idea of it being uh, open and like user friendly. So, so often when you go into like museums or places like that you know it's like very much like you're kept at arm's length and sure you know this allows you to like have like an immersive carson mccullers experience
1: absolutely yeah i mean it definitely felt that way to me and it just felt like this super um just like unprecedented access um to these archival materials um and uh just to some of the objects that surrounded her during her life or that, you know, she really valued. And and it's just interesting to be surrounded by that. And it's interesting to see the house that she grew up in. Um, It's the house. that makes her real. It makes her super real. Yeah. Um, And, and I don't know, I guess a little bit, closer, not not quite so distant. You can see like this was her neighborhood and you know, these were the sidewalks that she walked down. This was the park she played in, you know, things like that.
0: Could you find like reference points like picked up from her books? Like, oh, she was talking about this or Yeah. And and then also um can you talk a little bit more specifically about what maybe you pulled from that experience of living in her house that wound up in your work? Or how did it you know, add dimension or specific, um, changes or accents or.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to make too many, like one to one correspondences between like her house and, and stuff in her books. But at the same time, I, I couldn't help but think about, um, like scenes from member of the wedding that take place in Frankie's kitchen with Berenice and John Henry and like then being in this kitchen and, in. The house that she grew up in, um, and you know, the layout
0: feels similar. So well, that had to be the kitchen that was in her mind, right? Or right, at or at least,
1: yeah, that was part of the kitchen in her mind, I, I would guess. Um, so yeah, stuff like that. I, I think I was really aware of. Um, and then the same goes for like because I read so many of her letters and. Uh, And the therapy transcripts, when she does refer to episodes in her life, I can kind of picture where they took place, Um, like where her first wedding took place, which was in the living room of this house, for example. Um, And then in terms of what I drew from my experience at the house... um, I really wanted to, I mean, it was really at the house, I think, where um, I started to realize how important it was to foreground my own perspective in the book, which is ultimately, I think, how I wound up in it. Um, So I, I had been doing this all along, but I just I started to understand why it was important to show not just what I was seeing, but the person who was doing the seeing, um, the perspective that I was coming from what I was bringing to the experience. Um, and, and, why,
0: and why was it so important
1: to do that? Because yeah. I had, at, by this point I had read all of the published biographies and critiques of McCullough's work. Um, and, you know, even just various, you know, little essays that have been published about her, even in recent years. And what, drove me crazy about all of these was that they kind of presumed this, this knowledge about, um, life, her motivations, her beliefs, her feelings. Um, and they, they had this very like third person detached, like this is what she thought. This is what she wanted. She did this because she felt this, you know, um, which is something you see in, you know, pretty much all traditional biographies. That's, that's the way they're written in almost a third person omniscient, uh, voice. And now that I was close enough to the material to be reading, um, you know, it was at the house that I discovered the um, therapy transcripts, um, it, it, not at the house, they were in an archive at Columbus State University, which is uh, in the same city. Um, when I'm reading these therapy transcripts and actually seeing her talk about her life in her own words, um, I can see how much the biographers got wrong or or how much her version is at odds with theirs. So suddenly this whole project of trying to narrate someone else's life from an like outsider's perspective or, or to claim any kind of objectivity on that seemed totally flawed. Um, and I really felt like the answer to that or the solution to that to me seemed to just say to, to, to foreground my own voice it's like new
0: it's like new like the new journalist approach to biography yeah
1: <laughs> yeah yeah. which
0: I, i'm totally down with i mean i think that was kind of what i was uh, talking about before we started recording maybe where i was like fumbling trying to ex- express why i i like your approach so much because it feels more honest mm-hmm. and more interesting um, because otherwise, you know, you, if you're writing a biography in third person omniscient or whatever, um, it, it's like you, the, the writer's hiding. I mean, the, look, listen, there's yeah. a place for biography for
1: sure. Yeah, you know, yeah.
0: I don't want to totally discount, but just as a matter of personal taste, maybe mm-hmm. I love it when, um, you know, the writer is there and I love this kind of like uh hybrid approach or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess, you know, it's obviously spelled out, um, in the book, uh, at least to some extent, but can you just talk a little bit about what the process of foregrounding yourself and going through all this stuff. Like, what did you learn about yourself, uh, and how you want to live your life or how you want to approach your creative life? Did you mm. come to any conclusions?
1: Um, gosh, I mean, I think w- what's interesting, I guess, again, like looking back, uh, on the process of writing the book and then kind of thinking about where I am in my life now, it's like if, if I hadn't written this, I, I don't, you know, like I, I feel like everything that went into the writing of it and all of the circumstances that came together that we've talked about um, were really what got me to the place that I'm in now, which is now I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and um, I'm primarily a writer um, and I'm able to support myself doing that. Uh, I also work as an archivist for an artist in Santa Fe, and, um, and uh, my partner was also an intern at the archive. That's where we met. And at Harry Ransom? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, so it's like all of these weird convergences, but it also, like, the process of writing this book felt like uh, almost a coming to terms with or, like, setting the terms of, like, the type of writing that I want to do, which is a writing that's, like, adamantly uh first person um that and that really kind of foregrounds even the even the i don't know what to call them the kind of like micro experiences uh of like you know discovery and coming to understand something um and so you know being in her house um and making these kind of really at at once kind of mundane seeming uh i guess having these sort of mundane realizations, but then also trying to put them on the page as a part of this larger story, I I kind of have come to see that that's the writing that I want to do more generally.
0: So do you think that, um, does this mean that you'll be back in archives
1: Yeah, I mean, so well, (laughs) one answer to that question is that uh, everything's an archive. That's something that uh, that's like kind of an in joke, but that a a professor of mine used to say, and it makes me crazy, because if you've ever actually been in an archive, you're like, no, actually, this is a very unique space. And it's very regimented (laughs) and institutionalized. Um, But you can also approach um, kind of any part of your lived experience um, with the uh, sort of tools of, of this, this type of research um, and, and looking for these kinds of evidence within your daily life. So uh, the shorter answer is just that some of the, the essays I'm writing now are, are based in archives and in, in research uh, into specific uh, people and historical events, and some of them are, are not.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah, and I think for some reason that Olivia Lang is popping into my head. Do you know her work? Yeah, I do. It's kind of a that. Like, uh, I feel like it's kind of similar.
1: Yeah, yeah. Her the the book on writers and drinking, uh, yeah. Trip to Echo Spring, that was very. Uh, that I was reading that actually when I was at Yaddo working on this, and and it has a lot of. um it was perfect for that moment because I was thinking a lot about just these like more gossipy anecdotes. I thought you
0: were going to say because I was drinking. Because I was drinking really heavily, <laughs>
1: you know, just to sleep at night. No, <laughs> I really wasn't. Um, but but I was thinking about just all, all of the different people who've been at Yaddo drinking. Um, Including... Including Carson. Carson. Yeah. To, and
0: like, what is this story about uh, Carson McCullers, like prostrating herself outside the door of Catherine Ann Porter? Yeah. That's, that happened? That's
1: Yeah. That's one of the stories that many people tell that basically she just really, she really wanted to meet Catherine Ann Porter and talk to her and you weren't supposed to bother any of the other writers or artists before uh, dinner time. Basically, that's kind of like a rule there. Um, and so, you know, she, instead of knocking on the door, she just kind of waited outside the door and eventually just, like, laid down in the doorway. <laughs> Catherine <laughs> Porter, you know, opens the door to go to dinner and just, like, steps over her body. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were not friends. If
0: the walls of Yaddo could talk.
1: I know. Well, there are so many yeah, of those really good, juicy uh, stories and anecdotes and weird goings-on. Uh, well,
0: like, what else? Anything else I need to know about?
1: Um, Let's see. Uh, well, the one that people always tell... Uh, Uh, is just about uh, John Cheever and kind of like how he was always exposing himself to everyone. Wow. Yeah, that was like his thing. When he was drunk. (laughs) Yeah, he was probably really drunk. Okay, one would hope at least. Right. Yeah, and there's a whole scandal that I get into in the book with Robert Lowell, who like he's a real trip. Um, And he was trying to like oust the director of Yaddo for being a communist and basically also being a lesbian. And so there's, there's just a whole mess of really juicy, weird history there.
0: I'm not... Yeah, I'm not off the wall enough to go to yado. <laughs> I'm thinking, though, right now they should, uh, if they ever do a podcast from Yado, it could be called the Yodcast.
1: The Yodcast. I like that.
0: I feel like that could happen, but that might be too, that might break the uh, the silence, or I feel like you know, there's yeah, a peacefulness. Yeah, I don't think
1: they'll do that. Yeah, I they think they're, they just really leave you alone, which is what's nice and about it. And don't they it. bring you food? They bring you lunch every day in a little pail.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> it's
1: the best. That sounds
0: good. <laughs> yeah. What about... Uh, what Like what work uh, was Carson doing when she was there? Was there a specific book?
1: She worked on a uh, member of the wedding there. She worked on Ballad of the Sad Cafe, um, and I think she also wrote some of Reflections there, so kind of her of her big novels um heart a lonely hunter she had already written 23 uh, when she was 23 when she was like she she won a contest with it um she like just submitted this outline um for a book and to houghton mifflin and they they were like yes go write it here's your advance which like when does that happen that's crazy yeah (laughs) so amazing um but yeah she worked on a ton of her her books at at yaddo and um and I think it was just a really like important place for her writing, her writing life.
0: So, are you still Catholic?
1: No, yeah. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I ever was. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's not exactly a welcoming environment, no. you know, for uh, for everyone.
1: No, definitely not. And I think. Um, I mean, I think I am still Catholic in the sense that I still have all kinds of weird stuff in my brain. um, It never really
0: leaves you fully. If you you were raised in it from childhood, I've been thinking about this lately. And this is, you know, I, I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but this is actually the approach I'm taking with my kids is that you really shouldn't get a kid involved in religion they're too young and impressionable. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the whole point, I guess, right. because you can indoctrinate somebody when you're young, Totally. but anything spiritual, like anything along those lines, you shouldn't even start to consider that until your brain is fully formed and you've got some autonomy.
1: That makes so much sense because instead, like what happened is that my brain wasn't fully formed and probably, you know, the same maybe with you. And, and I was learning all about like all of these different sins, like mortal sins. And, uh, Uh, all of the different, um, I don't know. And even like the sacraments, it's weird because the project I'm working on now has this very um, weird, like Catholic shadow of like the deadly sins and the sacraments that like, what is this project? It's uh, I'm working on a collection of essays right now. It's called crystal vortex. Um, It's very very Santa Fe. Yeah. That's the goal. That's the goal. Uh, Which I think is just a hilarious title. (laughs) It's my favorite part right now. Um, But yeah. It has this weird Catholic shadow. Cause I think I still have all these things in my head. And like, so one of the essays is about, um, marriage and my decision not to get married. Um, and like marriage is a sacrament within Catholicism. Like that's one of the milestones of your life. That is one of the things you're going for. Like I did my first communion. I did my, uh, confirmation and the next thing was supposed to be my wedding and sorry mom it's not gonna happen but uh so but yeah so i think like all of that stuff is just very much still in uh in my brain and still working out a lot of different components
0: that's what writing is for right right (laughs) um well i'm glad to catch you uh for this like brief time you're in los angeles i appreciate you I know you've got to go to your reading mm-hmm. um, and are you still on tour? Are you going back home? What's...
1: This is my last stop. I think I just did 13 cities oh uh, in a row and I feel crazy and I get to go home to Santa Fe tomorrow uh, and sleep for a week.
0: That's great. And then <laughs> are you meeting people or have you met people on the road? Um, can you describe some of those interactions? Cause I imagine that a book like this would resonate. I mean, I, you know, I guess it's every book could say this on some level, but I'm imagining people who are like deep into Carson McCullers coming up to you. I'm imagining people who might have gone through similar struggles or might currently be going through similar struggles coming up to you. Have you had those kinds of responses and conversations?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The first um, like many stops of the tour were all in the South, um, and I did a bunch of different cities, and um, there were a lot of uh, kind of lifelong Carson McCullers fans who would come out. Um, there were always, um, some queer, uh, usually like even teens or like 20 somethings who would come, um, and, uh, disgruntled graduate students usually. (laughs) And then some like older lesbians would usually be in the audience and they always had really good questions and were really excited to be there. So I just have had like this amazing, I'm still like processing all of it and trying to even like, um, uh you know remember all of it but um i but i yeah i met so many people who have been touched by mcculler's work um or who like you know who have never even read her but who are just like kind of interested in this this particular story and in kind of unearthing queer histories um and that has been such an amazing part of the tour to kind of just be you know one-on-one with people
0: yeah that's gratifying yeah and the books connecting definitely um well congratulations on it and uh, good luck with crystal vortex
1: thank you <laughs>
0: and, <laughs> uh safe travels back to uh santa fe as well where like you know it's like uh there's lots of crystals there right
1: yeah there's plenty of crystals like, definitely to- is
0: it topaz what is the um, stone that green
1: it's what's it oh my gosh my brain is gone it's uh
0: <laughs> opal no topaz
1: no Turquoise. <laughs> turquoise. That's what it is. Turquoise. Turquoise is
0: turquoise a stone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh well, you can gosh. put all your like turquoise. All my turquoise. And, on. All your rings. Yeah. It's like your power color. <laughs> um, but yeah, enjoy the reading tonight. Safe travels, and thanks again.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: All right, guys. That is Jen Chaplin. I almost said that is Carson McCullers. <laughs> That is Jen Shapland, and her book is called My Autobiography of Carson McCullers. It's available from Tin House. If you want to find Jen online, her website is jenshapland.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at Jen Shapland. My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, available now from Tin House Books. Go get your copy immediately. Just, you know, order it, have somebody deliver it, and then just, you know, wipe it down. Read it. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music at the top of the interview. If you would like to support this program, if you listen and you like what you hear and you want to tip your server, you can do that at patreon.com otherpplpod. That's patreon.com otherpplpod. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go search for it. Go find it wherever you get your apps. It's free. It's a free app. So, uh, let me look at my little calendar here got some i got some good ones coming up. I might throw up some Sunday episodes. Like I'm not sure until like usually till the weekend. But you might be seeing some Sunday episodes as the pandemic continues. I'm going to try to give you guys something to do, you know? Keep you company. But I do know that coming up next is uh my conversation with Chrissy Van Meter. So stay tuned for that. I had fun with her. She's uh like really into Disneyland. We got to, We talked a lot about that, as I recall. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. It's just—it's just an insane time. I can't watch the news anymore. I gotta cut myself off. Just tell me, like, wake me up when it's over. Can somebody just wake me up when the shit ends? And I don't just mean the pandemic, I mean all of it. Just, you know, okay.